Welcome to this episode of Anesthesia on Air, the podcast from Royal College of Anesthetists. My name is Joyce Young. I am a consultant in anesthesia and crystal care, and I work in University Hospitals Birmingham NHS Foundation Trust. I'm also an Associate Clinical Professor at University of Warwick, and I'm the National Specialty Lead for Anesthesia at the NIHR Clinical Research Network. Um, today, I'm joined by three experts to discuss the result HIP trial, a shorthand for the impact of restrictive versus liberal transfusion strategy on cardiac injury and death in patients undergoing surgery for hip fracture. Um, so I'd like to introduce my um, co-podcast um, colleagues. Uh, the first one is Professor Mike Gillis. Uh, would you like to say hello? I'm Mike Gillis. Uh, I'm a consultant in critical care in Edinburgh and along with Tim Walsh, um, I'm one of the co-chief investigators for the result HIP trial. Thanks, Mike. Um, and Dr. Rona Sinclair. Oh, thank you, Joyce. Hi, uh, my name is Rona Sinclair. I work in the northeast of England um, at Newcastle Hospitals at the RBI. Uh, I'm the principal investigator for the result HIP trial here and have been involved uh, over the last couple of years with getting patients involved and setting the study up. Thank you. And also joining us is Dr. Alex Kilgour. What is your role in, in terms of result HIP trial? So I am a co-investigator um, and am actively involved in the trial in the Royal Infirmary in Edinburgh, which is the lead site. I am an orthogeriatrician, so I bring a different perspective to the research team um, and I'm actively involved in looking after older adults who are being recruited to the study and helping with recruitment in the department as well. So uh, that's really great. So thank you very much for joining us on the podcast um, to discuss your trial. Um, it's always a privilege to talk directly to researchers about their ongoing trial and what motivates them to do the trial. And I guess Mike and, and Ron and Alex, I've known you for some time now. Um, we all share interest in looking after patients with hip fracture when they come across our care. Um, so, but can you tell us what motivates you with this trial and trying to apply for funding to look into um, transfusion practices in patients with hip fracture? Maybe I'll ask you, Mike. Rona and I, and also Tim, who, who's involved with the trial, have all had an interest in perioperative blood management. Um, and uh, patients with hip fracture are a group that, that often require blood transfusions. Um, and hip fracture is a, a big problem affecting the NHS. Um, 75 to 80,000 uh, patients a year have a hip fracture. It's a, it's a big part of NHS workload. Um, I think the lifetime risk of having hip fracture is, is something like one in 11. So, so it's a big, um, you know, it's a big issue for society at large and it's a big part of hospital workload. Um, and as well as that, many of the patients who get hip fractures are, are elderly. Uh, they've got comorbidities um, and there's um, they often require blood transfusion um, and there's a lot of uh, gui guidelines currently around when we should transfuse, pa transfuse patients who've had surgery um, in general and particularly in hip fracture um, and those guidelines don't always agree on the best uh, strategy for transfusion um, and some of the work we did preparing for the trial um, kind of highlighted that there was a big variation in transfusion practice 
uh, in, in clinicians that look after these patients. Uh, and also the James Lind Alliance, which uh, is a kind of priority setting uh, group uh, that involves patients uh, and identifies areas that, that, that patients would like prioritised for research, have, have identified emergency surgery and uh, elderly patients having surgery as being you know, key areas where we should focus our, our research. Um, and also another one was um, minimising the use of inappropriate blood transfusions. So, so this study you, fulfills some of those as well. So thanks, Mike. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about the design aspects of the trial? Um, is it a double-blinded uh, randomised controlled trial? Yeah, so it's, it's a, a kind of randomised controlled trial of two transfusion strategies. Um, and as we kind of touched on before, NICE guidance for transfusion and hospitalised adults is actually quite restrictive, but um, patients who have had a hip fracture, um, you know, because they're elderly and because they've had surgery, um, the evidence around transfusion in that group isn't as good. Um, and they typically were excluded from a lot of the trials that were done in transfusion. So some other guidance, um, kind of notably the association guidance, sort of suggests that maybe higher transfusion thresholds are desirable in this group. Uh, but work that we've done around clinician practice seems to suggest there's quite a widespread of transfusion practice. So the study is to compare um, a liberal transfusion strategy, which is you know, transfusing at a transfusion trigger of 90 grams per litre or greater, um, versus a, a, more, a more restrictive one, uh, which is more in line with the NICE guidance, which recommends a transfusion trigger of 75 grams per haemoglobin of 75 grams per litre or greater um, and it's a it's a study of of patients who have been admitted with hip fracture uh, they can be included you know included from any point from admission to seven days after surgery um, and the way that we've designed the trial is that patients who are admitted and meet the age and fracture cr criteria. So you're over 60 with a hip fracture. You can be given the information, you can be consented, uh, but you're only randomized to one group or the other if your haemoglobin falls to 90 or less. So that often, you know, almost, uh, you know, the vast majority of patients become anemic in the post-operative period. Um, and then if you are um, randomised to the liberal, liberal group, you would be transfused straight away. Um, and if you, you would be aiming for the liberal patients to have a, an HB in the range of 90 to 110. And if you're um, in the restrictive arm to 75 to 90, um, patients stay in that group for the duration of their hospital admission or for 30 days, uh, whichever is longest. And <clears throat> the primary outcome is is either death or cardiac complications, and to try and make that as um, you know as as accurate as possible, we have um, kind of protocolized troponin measurement. Uh, they have three troponin measurements in the first five days. They have ECGs done, um, and they have some clinical information collected. And then we have a panel of cardiologists who will 
adjudicate the primary outcome um, with all that information. So that's to kind of try and make the primary outcome as consistent as possible. And then we collect some other information on secondary outcomes, so cardiac injury, other complications such as acute kidney injury, um, incidence of delirium, infection, death um, at 30 days and at 120 days. And then we also have a quality of life at 30 and 120 days. And we have a health economic outcome as well uh, because because this group are, are a, you know, a big user of healthcare resources. <clears throat> They're often readmitted to hospital. 25% of them aren't discharged to their original place of residence, so they may well get discharged to a nursing home or convalescent facility. Um, so, so that's kind of very important information to capture too. And then, you know, a lot of blood tra transfusion in this group is given with the hope of improving mobilisation, um, you know, reducing hospital stay. Um, and, and so I think it's, it's very important to try and capture um, those outcomes as well. Great. Thanks, Mike. And can you just remind us how many patients you're targeting to recruit, please? Um, yeah, so it's a big study. Um, it's, um, we're looking to recruit 1,964 patients. Um, and uh, that's based, uh, we're using a, a kind of a composite outcome, but it's actually a, um, it's what's called a door outcome. It's a desirability of outcome ranking. Um, so it, it's a kind of, I guess it's a bit of a black box, but but it it incorporates you know, d death in hospital. It incorporates um, different cardiac complications, and it, and it sort of prioritises patients to whether they, you know they die, or or they develop complications, or you know they recover without either dying or developing complications. So. Um, so yeah, we, we kind of estimate the rate of death at 7%, which is from the National Hip Fracture Database, um, and the rate of complications at about 10% based on, of cardiac complications based on other published data. But one of the concerns is obviously that because, you know, there's a tendency to recruit patients who are a bit better, who can consent for themselves, or, or who don't, you, you know, have... Um, lots of other health problems, um, we, we might end up with patients who are sort of, who have slightly better outcomes. So I think there's always a risk that, that your study might be underpowered. No, thanks, Mike. Um, and Rona, um, I know that you're a very experienced anaesthetist. Um, you're also uh, very research active. So I know that you've um, recruited a lot of um, patients to different trials before. What's your experience being um, acting as PI for this study? Um, how's it going? Oh, good question. Um, how's the study going? The study is going well in our hospital. Um, we have lots of patients that we can access and um, I think the clinical team are interested in doing this because it answers a real clinical question about what to do with these patients that they see on a day-to-day -day basis and how to guide management. And although sometimes they will make a clinical decision outside of the trial, a lot of the time there is genuine um, a genuine unknown about what's the correct thing to do for a patient. So, 
um, often the option to put them into the study and randomise them is, is taken up as a, a useful way of finding out better information and making a decision um, for everybody, both that patient and for the future. So I think we have, we have been relatively successful in putting patients into the study so far. Um, there have been challenges. So the, the principal things that challenge the research team are the patient cohort. And I think this is seen both um, in, in this study, but in also, also in other studies of the older population. And Alex was alluding to this when she was uh, talking about research in, in geriatrics. But the, the patient cohort from the hip fracture group are probably about half of them have um, long-term cognitive dysfunction, um, mainly attributed to dementia. Um, and some of them also have a, a an acute confusional state on top of that. And that adds into the, the major stressor of having fallen, fractured, been admitted to hospital, had major surgery, and, and then being expected to recover from it. And I think that the the patients and both their families find that uh, research in this context is quite challenging. Uh, and I think that that's one of the big things that we come up against. And often that's often you can use that as a positive experience to say that this is an opportunity for patients to contribute and to change things and to shape the future. But equally, um, for a lot of patients and families, the, the whole experience is difficult and therefore adding research in on top is, is sometimes a step too far. And I suspect that other people will be finding this in other hospitals. Um, and that re recruitment is, is quite challenging for that, for that reason. No, that's great. Um, it, it's really nice to hear how well it's going at your at your hospital. Um, I know that in the palliative care setting, sometimes the element of the pressure of time, running a list on time, getting patients through on a list and looking after them um, can be a real challenge for researchers to try to get in and add on top of our additional workload, you know, the, the added uh, complexity of randomization and data collection. So it's really nice to hear um, um, that you're, you have clinician support. Um, if uh, in, in other hospitals, sometimes that you may get challenged. Um, I know that there's uncertainty um, in this area, but um, a lot of anesthetists will have their normal practice. So um, let's just say they, their normal practices prefer to have patients uh, with a high hemoglobin. Have you come across that sort of uh, situation where um, you maybe your clinical colleagues disagree with you and it's not quite as supportive? Do you have any tips, uh, hints of how to try to get and come around to research? Um, so I think a lot of this is about how you set up research as a site to start with. And um, I can say that we actively tried to engage everybody with this study well before we started approaching patients and while it was in the setup phase. And I think that happens for lots of studies. I'm certainly... Um, experience that with other perioperative studies that we've set up that they are um, on the cards people are aware of them ahead of time and that that's an opportunity to use that time to um, canvas your colleagues to talk about it to let them know this is coming so that they can um, start to get used to the idea of something new because change is always a challenge isn't it um, and, and and by engaging people through 
um, say, meetings um, and opportunities where people have discussions, then I think that's that's probably the way to get people on board to being involved in research. I, I think the other thing that um, self-perpetuates itself is that when you have a research active department, uh, more research on top of it uh, is easier to swallow because that's what we do when we're used to putting people into trials and have a, a good team that approach patients and also approach the clinicians looking after them to check that they know that that's happening and that they are relatively happy with it. I think when people have very strong objections, particularly on clinical grounds, then then we leave those patients alone. Um, that's hopefully the correct thing to do um, and, and means that they are more trust, trusting of us approaching other patients at other times. No, I agree with that. Thank you. Thank you, Rona. And um, I think we, um, uh, some people may not understand, but our, our, our listeners would, that um, anaesthetists work with a variety of um, other uh, clinicians and also geriatricians, I would say, is one of our strongest allies in looking after patients with often with very complex need and also of an older age. Um, and so it's really great to have you involved in, with our research trials. Um, and I guess it's interested clinicians. We've seen quite a lot of trials and research published for this um, patient cohort in the past. Do you feel that there is uh, still more research to be done? And um, Alec, do you feel that the overall medical care of this patient group has been in safe in the last 10 years or so? So I think the care of hip fracture patients has changed enormously over the last 10 years. Um, the um, National Hip Fracture Database found that in 2009, only 20% of hip fracture patients were being seen by a geriatrician during their inpatient stay. Um, and now, in both in Scotland and England, that figure is up to kind of high to mid 80s of patients are being seen by a geriatrician within the first 72 hours. So that shows you there's just been a landmark shift in the input of geriatricians into these hip fracture patients over this time period. Um, there's still huge potential for research and improvements in care of these um, adults, older adults. Um, they are remain a very vulnerable group, um, but it's been shown that um, changes in practice have definite clinical improvements in this inpatient group. Um, you know, the mortality of hip fracture at the start of the National Hip Fracture Database um, within 30 days was around about 12% and it's now down to somewhere between 75 and 8%. Um, and that's clear evidence that changing practice reduces mortality, even in this frail group. Um, so I think there's still many things that we could change and improve upon. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. Um, do you think that um, in research, sometimes when you design a, a research trial, you, we often focus on safety aspects. So we want to make sure that trial participants are uh, well looked after and they're not at risk of um, any additional risk, I guess, uh, when participating in trials. So sometimes when a trial report the findings, we, we might find that the patient cohort they've recruited are a bit younger or fitter um, than, you know, the normal patients that we look after. Do you think that um, this is a still an ongoing problem with regards to patients, for example, patients with hip fractures who we want to recruit to clinical trials? Yeah, un unfortunately, this definitely is an ongoing problem. There's good evidence that most research trials, the um, population that is recruited to the trial is younger than the average age of the, of the um, 
average patient with the same condition. Um, but I think result HIP is a really good trial because there aren't many exclusion criteria at all. Um, so um, there it should be really quite representative of the population that we're looking after. And there definitely is some evidence that um, more older people are being recruited to research and more frail older patients are being recruited to research. There is an improvement in that direction, but there is still some way to go. Thanks, Alex. Um, and I guess the question to um, well, to 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 all of our uh, podcast colleagues is: um, it's always difficult to predict what you're going to find as a research study. Um, uh, so perhaps it's, um, I'm asking you to look into a, um, a crystal ball. But how do you think this research project is going to is going to mean to the patient group um, or, or to our future clinical practice? I'm probably going to ask Mike first. So, you know, I think I think blood transfusion is quite a controversial area in this group of patients, and you know, there are a lot of you know, there's a lot of equipoise out there, um, and there are a lot of people who you have quite strong beliefs uh, around this, um, and I think it's also important to patients because um, you know patients often have you know quite strong feelings about having a blood transfusion too. Um, I think if, you know, if use of blood in these patients, because we, we do a lot of, there's a lot of research out there look, looking at increasing haemoglobin in these patients, not just blood transfusion, but, you know, use of IV iron um, to try and improve recovery um, after what, you know, is, is often, a you know, a, you know, a massive insult and, you know, a long hospital stay and in quite a, you know, a frail and comorbid population, um, you know, if this is something that is beneficial to them, then I think it would be good to have, you know, evidence that this is a good thing because at the, at the current time, the evidence that we have favours a more kind of restrictive use of blood. But, um, you know, I don't know what the study is going to find. I think, um, you know, otherwise, I guess we wouldn't be doing the study. You're absolutely right, of course, Mike. Uh, what about you, Rona? Do you think it will change our practice? I hope it will guide our practice in the future, whatever the outcome is. And I think that my observations on um, working on the wards and seeing patients perioperatively is that whatever the outcome is, any more information is useful. And particularly for the junior doctors or the geriatricians looking after these patients day in day out for up to you know up to two weeks or so in their hospital stay afterwards um, having better knowledge about whether uh, blood transfusions will change their outcomes can only be beneficial um, whichever way the the study reports i agree with that and actually um in I guess the, with the setting of the, the trial is that we're doing this in UK and obviously in the UK we have a healthy pool of um, blood products um, that's available um, should we need it and I guess we're lucky with that but there are other clinical settings where blood uh, products are not so widely available um, and, and I think uh, also for me it's important to understand that patients won't be put at additional risk because we believe they should be transfused to a certain level that we we just give them um, the blood products because of that and it's based on really good evidence. I think one of the things that will be useful will be to look at whether there are adverse events 
particularly in terms of circulatory overload, because the number of very small, elderly, frail, mainly women, um, that, that receive a unit of blood on their 40 kilograms of body weight um, who could potentially run into problems with that fluid overload, I think um, will be a useful clinical question to be able to answer. And certainly something that you hear the junior doctors debating um, whilst they're trying to decide what to do with these patients when they're you know, managing them on Friday afternoon. So I, I think any more any information is useful. Yeah, definitely. I think it makes it really relevant to our um, to our clinical practice, and also I think some of the lessons can be learned. If the findings, I'm hoping you know, we we don't exactly know what you find, but um, any any additional data will be helpful on adverse events and on any potential benefits. And also, um, I think we sometimes forget what we're going to find is going to be. Um, looked at and scrutinized by researchers and clinicians worldwide and so they can take our findings to apply into their clinical settings whether they also have um, uh, sort of uh, really uh, available unlimited uh, blood supply products or not I think we sometimes forget that um, they're different clinical settings but we can still learn um, from uh, all the research that we've done. The other thing that might be uh, quite interesting for people in the future is that there will be a report of the myocardial damage that occurs. So um, troponin samples are being done on patients that wouldn't be done in a normal clinical context because they haven't um, they haven't reported symptoms or signs of cardiac damage. And, and I think it will be interesting to see what happens in terms of that MINS damage and troponin changes over the course of the study. Uh, and that may also have significant implications for managing patients in the future um, and whether we should be looking for these things, acting proactively on them, um, whether they change outcomes, whether they have any difference for patients. Um, so I think there will be lots of useful things that come out just from studying in depth um, the patient population. Yeah, a real opportunity to explore um, this area that we, we don't normally um, do routine troponins on BPO post-surgery necessarily and also maybe explore uh, future research topics as well. That's great. I'm just going to ask uh, one more question, Mike. Um, uh, so, uh, and to, to you and the research team, if our listeners are interested, how can they get involved? We're still looking for sites and um, you know, anyone, anyone who is interested in getting their hospital involved would be very welcome. Uh, we do have a trial webpage and we are on Twitter. Um, if, you, if you Google um, Edinburgh Clinical Trials Unit, uh, Result Hip Trial, uh, you can find us there, um, or, or th- there will be contact details in the in the information about this podcast as well. Um, and and if you get in touch, we can do a you, you know a feasibility questionnaire to see if your site is suitable. Um, so this this study really involves anaesthetists, orthopaedic surgeons, hematologists, and orthogeriatricians. So it would, it's good to discuss with uh, with all those. Um, individuals or services in your hospital because they will all be impacted by this trial um, and, and it, it's good to to get support uh, fr- from them we're also very keen we're also very happy to you know to, to present something at your meetings or to to speak to interested individuals at your site if you're interested in getting involved so yeah get in touch and um, we can take it from there how many sites are you aiming to recruit mike so we're currently aiming to have 30 sites open and at the moment we're 
sort of in the in the low twenties. So we definitely have room for a few more sites. Um, you know, we we are we are kind of under review by the NIHR at, at various time points. So there can often be opportunity to have more sites or, or less. But um, but at the moment we're looking for sites. So so do get in touch if you're interested. And looking forward into the future, when would we expect the trial results to be published and available? So the we're into the main recruitment phase of the trial, um, and that will run until the end of next year, um, by which point we would have hoped to have recruited to target, assuming that um, assuming that we that doesn't change. Um, so probably 2025. Um, we could expect to have some results after we followed up the last patients. So I just want to say a big thank you to Alex, Mike and Rona for our conversation today about Result Hip. And we look forward to find out how you get on and what your findings will be in the future.